Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is a re-release of my interview with Mog Morgan in which he describes his time flying the Sea Harrier on exchange during the Falcons conflict. The original has some audio issues and uh, I fixed those for this re-release. So beyond that, everything else is the same. There's no new content in here. This is really just for the people who are watching the original or listening to the original and are finding it difficult to hear my end of the conversation. Before you go and start listening to Mog, uh, please like, uh, subscribe, and share this content. There's no advertising on here, uh, so there's no monetization. I don't make money out of the channel, but I really would like to reach a wider audience. I'd like to get Mog's story out there to more people. Uh, you can help me do that, so please uh, hit the bell button, get notified of future content, and uh, share this with other like-minded aviation enthusiasts. And I'll let you get back to listening to Mog. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to 10% True. This is the third and final part of my interview with Dave Mog Morgan. In it, Mog describes his air-to-air kills and also talks a little about the post-traumatic stress disorder that he experienced in the years after the war. In the previous episode, Mog described how he and Gordon Batt, better known as Gordy, had attacked the Narwhal, an Argentinian fishing vessel that had been commandeered by the Argentinian Navy for the purposes of finding British vessels. On the 23rd of May 1982, Gordon Batt was killed when the Sea Harrier he was flying exploded after takeoff. I started the final part of my interview with Mog by asking if he knew what had happened. I saw it, but I don't know what happened. Um... Gordy was a great guy and fantastic raconteur, um, an excellent tactician, very good air warfare instructor, um, but admitted he was pretty hopeless at instrument flying. I was programmed to do um, a loft attack against the airfield um, in sort of late afternoon. And I'd never seen the software for this particular attack. Uh, And I knew that Gordy had a lot of experience. So I grabbed him and said, hey, Gordy, can you brief me on on the loft attack? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. And we went into the briefing room and he started drawing it up on on the board. And then he said, look, I tell you what, I'm not on the program this afternoon. I'll, I'll do your trip and then I'll brief you fully when I get back. And I said, okay, that's fine. And um, for, I, I couldn't, when I was writing the book, I, 
I got to this stage and I, and I couldn't reconcile a few things. He was killed at night. I wasn't night qualified. So I couldn't have done the trip anyway. And what happened, I went back and looked at it um, uh, in the museum at Yeovilton. The captain actually said he didn't want to expose his sea harriers in a daylight raid. He wanted it to be done in the dark. Um, which was fine because Gordy was night qualified, I wasn't. I went up on the, in the, on the bridge to watch the launch and Gordy was the last guy to launch. I watched him go off the end of the ramp and as he went from into the darkness, I turned round to leave the bridge and there was just a huge white explosion um, from, I don't know, half a mile in front of the ship. Uh, and it was Gordy, he hit the water. And the only thing we can think of is that he got airborne and it was a left turn to go to the islands. And the nav light switch was down on the left hand side. And the the deal was you got airborne and once you were airborne you turned the nav lights off and we think he started his left hand turn looked down to the left to turn the nav lights off and just continued to roll and went in and it's it's pure supposition um but i think that's probably the most likely thing it was a very very dark night uh, no stars um very sad, very sad. Do you conduct um, mishap investigations during conflict or, or, or after conflict? Did anyone go back and try and piece that together? Um, I think there were fairly cursory ones done. Because there, there were, you mentioned two other pilots. The other, I think, the first two that were lost were. You think they flew into the maybe perhaps they flew into the sea, uh, conducting a similar intercept to the one that you had. Yeah, um, three possibilities, I think, with, with those two guys. Um, one, that the contact they were going down to look at, which was in a similar area to where I thought I'd seen a contact earlier on in the day. One, that it was an Argentine ship and it shot them both down. And I think we can discount that because no one's ever claimed it. Second possibility was that they flew into each other in cloud which is, once again, it's possible if they're both going for the same target, they might have done. But it's an you know, old big sky theory. It's got to be very unlucky to fly into each other in cloud. Um, I suspect they did what I almost did and flew down, just got a large rate of descent on. And um, it was low cloud into fog, and they probably just went straight in. So one was likely... Yeah, there was no call either of them, certainly. And we never found any any survivors, any wreckage or anything. As you move into the second week then, you, you, you just described how you sort of, your exhaustion, your mental sort of state sort of plateaued after about 10 days. What were the characteristics then of that second, that second week in comparison to the first week? Um, second week wasn't not a huge amount going on to be honest um we really got busy 
um, around about the, well, the landings were on the 21st, uh, so three weeks after our first initial raids. And for a number of days after that, we were very, very busy. Um, a, trying to, mainly trying to stop the attacks on the ships um, in, um, in the landing area uh, because we vitally needed to get the troops and the and the material ashore, uh, and in the first few days, it was absolutely critical that that we we kept as many aircraft away as possible. Uh, so that was our main job. Um, I never actually got to see any of the um, the attacking aircraft in that in that period, but I did come across three um, helicopters. Um, four helicopters actually, three Pumas and a, an Augusta 109 gunship on the 23rd, two days after the landings. Uh, I was up with John Leeming, who was another Air Force guy, ex-Lightnings, uh, ex-JR3s from Germany. He'd come down with 809 Squadron, the, um, the final brand new Sea Harriers off the production line. And um, I saw a helicopter flying very, very low over a little in the inlet in um, West Falkland and dived in to have a look at it. And the controller in uh, in the sound said he didn't, didn't think there were any um, friendlies, but he wasn't sure. And I came in very low, about sort of 15, 20 feet, head on to the first guy and realized it was a puma fairly late and we didn't have any pumas down there. Um, but I was too late to get my guns on him. So I, I went very low over his rotor head, pulling about five or six G to go back up in a big dumbbell to come around and, and shoot him. And to my amazement, uh, my wingtip vortices caught him and just threw him into the side of the mountain. Um, it was the cheapest kill of the war, actually. Uh, and I saw, as I looked back over my shoulder, saw him start to gyrate and then whap into the side of the mountain, roll over and, and explode. Um, meanwhile, John had said, I'm going for the rear man, which was the gunship that was supposed to be escorting them. And he fired 30 millimeter at that, and I saw him fire saw his fo uh, fall of shot and he pulled up and i said do you get him and he said no no um i didn't i said okay where is he relative to your fall of shot and he said 100 meters to the west and i thought christ how can you miss someone by 100 meters with guns it's just not possible anyway the next call from john was um what's the site setting for this this aircraft and he'd used the GR3 site setting, which was uh, three milliradians different from the Sea Harrier, which give you, gives you 100 yards on the ground. Um, so I had a go, and I opened out of range and missed him, peppered the area, but missed the helicopter. John had another go and missed. And then my second attack, I actually got at least one 30-millimeter round in the fuel tank at the back. And... Um, that was the end of him. John then found another Puma, 
which had shut down a couple of hundred yards away from the first one. And um, he'd run out of bullets. But he said, I'll fly over it and pull up directly over it, which he did. I rolled in, put my gun sight where he'd pulled up, couldn't see a thing, and was aware that I was getting very close to the ground at 450 knots in, a, in a quite a steep dive was just about to recover when I saw actually underneath the green gun sight in the head-up display was the green puma. So I pulled the trigger and my last two rounds came out and I recovered and in fact one of them took the tail rotor off. And it was then completely destroyed by the guys from Invincible who came along about 10 minutes later. So that's three three helicopter kills for you? Well, it, yeah, one was on the ground. <laughs> as, as, a, as a former helicopter pilot, did, did you have any sympathies for these guys? I did. I felt really rotten um, with the first guy because um, I, I didn't actually mean to knock him out of the sky. I was going to shoot him with my guns and somehow it seems, seems a bit churlish to knock him out with uh, wingtip vortices. But in fact, the crews all survived amazingly. Um, and I went back and looked at the wreckage after the conflict was over and it was full of 81 millimeter mortars and um, apparently had air to air, uh, ground to air missiles as well, which they rescued. So it was a good hit. But I went back to Hermes and was told the captain wanted to debrief me and went down to, to, to see him. And he congratulated us on um, getting rid of quite a large proportion of their helicopter transport which was really important in the Falklands because there are very, very few roads. Um, and he said, I'd better tell you this because you, you'll probably learn it anyway. Um, we think that Jeff Glover might have been in one of the Pumas. And that was the one squadron pilot who'd been shot down um, on the 21st, so two days beforehand. And he was shot down in Port Howard, just north of where these helicopters were. So for a few days, I thought I might have shot down and killed Jeff Glover. Um, and then one of the um, um, sneaky beakers caught me in the corridor uh, one evening and said, a couple of, couple of days later this was, um, I thought you might like to know, we've just had an intercept from Stanley saying that Jeff Glover's on a Hercules going back to Argentina tonight. So it was great relief. Did you find them on radar or did you see them visually? Visually. Um, if you fly too low over water in a helicopter, you get a snail trail on the water. And that's what I saw from, from I don't know, 8,000 feet. And fixed-wing aircraft is the same. If it's if it's very calm sea, um, you can see an aircraft. And people think if you sit down at 20 feet, no one's going to see me. From 10,000 feet, you can see this little snail trail coming across the water. You can't see the aircraft, but you can see its wake on the water. What was Jeff Glover shut down by then? He was was that Norlican? He was sent to. He went. He got airborne with Pete Squire, the boss of one. And um, Pete had an undercarriage problem and had to go back. Jeff went off on his own. Was asked to have a look at Port Howard, see if he could uh, see any enemy forces and he rattled through there as fast as he could as low as he could 
didn't see anything, went away for five minutes, then came back from another direction, by which time, of course, they were all awake. Um, and they took him out. He was very lucky. I mean, he, he was hit at very low level, going very fast, banged out, um, and hurt his arm quite severely. Ended up in a, in a lake um, in quite a bad way, not able to get into his dinghy. And luckily, they, um, the Argentine guys rowed out in a rowing boat and picked him up. I think there was a, there's a there's a fairly famous picture of him being sort of tended to by them. They they seem to have been they weren't like the North Vietnamese in the way that they they, they appear to sort of treat. No, they um, they looked after and looked after him pretty well actually. And so much so that he got worried that he'd been talking too much, and actually it was just their squadron mates coming to see him, you know, and having a chat. It wasn't an interrogation at all. You've you've already said. You know, a fair number of, of quite complimentary things about the Argentinian um, sort of Air Force and Navy and the way they conducted themselves and their, their, their capability. And, and I know that you're, you know, in touch with, um, and hopefully you'll tell us about the, the story soon, but, but uh, in touch with one of the guys you shot down. You also mentioned that there was a small number of Harriers against 140, 150 Argentinians. What was, what was your assessment then of their capability? Um, you know, were, they were well equipped or not. I mean, they were flying. You talked about the landing craft. They were flying A4s, I think, to attack those. They had uh, daggers. Um, no real precision strike capability other than the Exocet. Um, you know, did they do well with what they had? Yeah, they they pressed their attacks, certainly, uh, from that point of view, which you know, I guess is, is what, you'd, what you'd expect from um, Italians pretending to be Spanish who really want to be English. <laughs> Um, they flew extremely low uh, and straight straight at the ships. The trouble was their tactics were not very good. They, they initially were bombing using slip bombs from far too low levels, so they weren't fusing. They were just going straight through the ships. Um, they also never flew with a fighter escort their attack packages and if they just had one aircraft at the back with missiles um, they would have started to shoot us down because we didn't have the time to sort out the full package to find out where everyone was we just had to if you saw an aircraft at low level you just dived in and tried to shoot it down and on a number of occasions our guys came down in front of another Skyhawk behind them uh, I was one of them uh, and if they'd had missiles, they'd have started to uh, to take us out. And, you know, we only had 21 aircraft. Well, at this stage, we had um, 18 Sea Harriers. Did they explain to you that, or, or your sort of, you know, your, your friendship now with these, with, with one or two of these guys, have they explained to you why they didn't do that then? Uh, I think I haven't discussed it in detail, to be honest. Uh, I suspect that the command just wanted bombs on targets and uh, didn't see the point in sending an aircraft without bombs with missiles. Um, added to the fact that I don't think the attack guys had actually ever carried missiles, a bit like the, the Harrier GR3s. It wasn't until the Falklands that they started wiring the GR3s for sidewinders. 
Can we talk briefly then about air supremacy, air superiority? Um, I'm going to be honest and say I can't remember the differentiation between the two. One of them is where you you, you control the skies all the time. The other is where you control the skies when you need to. Um, wh- which did you have? Um, and and why did the Argentinians not realize that? I mean, they had an air refueling capability. Um, they had the numbers. Why did they not realize that they could have exercised control of the skies if they wanted to? I don't know. I mean, I'd say luckily their tactics were actually 20, 30-year-old tactics. Um, they they had never really progressed past the sort of third-generation American tactics, which were go in with lots of bombs at low level um, and you know, in air-to-air combat it was very rudimentary um we every time we or the, f- the very few times we actually came up against fighters air to air um um they were never a threat uh, we, we took them out so so can you tell the story then of your particular uh, double kill yeah it was right towards the end of the conflict um I'd had a trip around about lunchtime, um, hadn't seen anything, and then I had a bit of a, a few hours off because that night I was going to do my final night qualification trip, uh, which would normally be done somewhere off the south coast with plenty of diversion airfields, lovely balmy weather, um, but this was going to be in the middle of the South Atlantic with no diversions. Um, so I wasn't really looking forward to it, I must admit. But the deal was uh, myself and another guy who just finished the course at Yeovilton, Dave Smith, were going to be launched just before dark to go and do a cap sortie and then come back and land about 30 minutes after sunset. So nice and dark. Um, we were strapped in about a quarter of an hour before sunset, I suppose, um, and we got scrambled. And the only information we had was that there'd been an attack ashore. Uh, So we got airborne, headed out west. We're told to go to Lively Island, which is about um, 40 miles south of Stanley, um, in the mouth of Chesil Sound. Um, on the way there, we called up the pair that we were relieving on CAT, and they uh, they said, uh, okay, we're over the action. And I said, give us a clue, where's the action? Because they hadn't actually told us anything. And they said, you'll see as you get closer, which I thought was a little bit ominous. And sure enough, about 90 miles to run, I saw this column of thick black smoke and it was the Tristram and Galahad that had been attacked in uh, Port Pleasant. It's, the history books say it's Bluff Cove, but actually it was the one round the corner at Port Pleasant. Um, and the, these two landing craft were burning fiercely, and the helicopters and the lifeboats were trying to get them off. Um, and it was fairly obvious that there was something pretty major going on down below. And it had been four Skyhawks attacked them and put that, put large bombs in. 
um, for 40 odd minutes we stooged around at 10,000 feet um, didn't want to go below 10 because we knew that they were trying to set up a rapier battery and we didn't want anyone getting itchy fingers um, I noticed after our first couple of circuits around the cap station that there was another landing craft smaller landing craft coming up from the direction of Chesil Sound and passed this back to our controller who was actually in San Carlos water so with a very limited radar picture and he said yep that's a friendly and it was one of Fearless's landing craft in fact with a um, uh, Royal Signals detachment on board and their Land Rovers um, going around towards Bluff Cove um, after I say about 40 minutes or so I looked at the fuel and thought okay we've got enough for one more outbound leg two minutes up threat and then we'll need to go home this stage it was still light at 10,000 feet but it was pretty dark down at sea level and in my final term we were doing a an inwards turn and rotate at the end of our cap station I looked down at the landing craft and saw four Skyhawks running into attack it and I briefed Dave before we went if either of us saw anything at low level just as to call it out and go for it and the other guy would come down almost second world war and try and clear his tail uh, unfortunately David just passed me 180 out when I saw these guys so I stuffed the nose down and slammed the throttle open accelerated as fast as I could zero G brought the flap up and um, ended up going downhill very very fast uh, not quite sure how fast but Dave was doing 700 plus 730 knots um, and I was losing him. He was, I was drawing away from him. So I was probably doing 740, 750 knots, which is way faster than any Sea Harriers ever got. Um, I looked back to try and see Dave, couldn't see him, looked forward again and saw one uh, Skyhawk um, open up with his 20 mil cannon and then drop a bomb which missed the landing craft and the second guy came in and dropped a bomb which hit right on the the stern and took out the um, superstructure and i was going to go for him and then saw a guy to the south of me so rattled across towards him at this stage i was still doing a good 650 knots um, probably more than that um, and locked a missile on him, pulled the trigger, and the missile came off the port wing and went straight up his jet pipe at minimum range, sort of 300 yards. And I can remember physically seeing the missile disappear up his jet pipe as, it, as the warhead went. And it just blew the aircraft into very small pieces. Unfortunately, because I was going so fast, um, the missile coming off the wing, I think, went supersonic as soon as it moved and threw me 140 degrees of roll to the right. 
at about 50 feet over the sea, which was quite startling. Um, I racked the aircraft upright again and found myself pointing at the next Skyhawk. So locked the second missile to him. And he, I thought he'd seen me because he broke hard to the left. I fired the missile, came off the starboard pylon and went right across my nose, taking a big cut on the uh, on the Skyhawk. And I'm sure he saw it coming because he reversed his turn and broke the other way, trying to outmaneuver the missile. But it was still pretty short range, and the missile just followed him round and took the took the aircraft just behind the cockpit. Everything from there backwards disappeared in a great sheet of explosion. And I can remember seeing the cockpit rotate through 90 degrees and go straight into the water. I then was looking for the guy ahead of him. And the next thing I saw was a parachute right in front of my face. And this chap had actually ejected. Uh, and he went very, very low over the top of my cockpit, still horizontal, and a big human star shape. Uh, and I then engaged the the front guy with 30 millimeter. Unfortunately, as I fired the second missile, I lost my head up display. It was a glitch in the software. It had been developed in a matter of about three weeks and sent down in someone's Burberry pocket. Um, normally, you just turned the HUD off and back on again. And um, 15, 20 seconds later, you, you had a picture, but there was no time for that. So I just pulled this guy to the bottom of the windscreen squeezed the trigger and gradually released it back and then pulled him to the bottom again and did the same again. Didn't see any hits. He was down around about 20, 30 feet at this stage as well. In, and this is, you know, pretty dark dusk. Um, so at that stage, having run out of bullets, I was aware of Dave behind me saying, pull up, pull up, someone's shooting at you. And he'd, all he'd seen was whoosh, bang, whoosh, bang from my two missiles and then a dark shape with explosions all rounded in the water. And he assumed it was me, but it's actually it was the Skyhawk I was shooting at. So I pulled up vertically. He saw me go up through the horizon and fired a missile at the guy I'd been shooting at. And it took him out at maximum range. I saw the missile burn out halfway to the target, but it still had the legs to get there. And the flash of the warhead actually hit the reflection in the water. So he was down less than 20 feet. And there was just a big greasy fireball and he um, landed at Rain Cove in Lithonia. Um, I then looked at the fuel gauges and realized that I wasn't going to get back to the ship. Uh, we used, as a rule of thumb, 2,000 pounds of fuel overhead Stanley, is, which was about the right figure to get back. And um, I had 1,400 pounds. So uh, it wasn't going to happen. And I got up, I said to Dave, okay, just make your own way back. I'm going to go up as high as I can. I got up to 42,000 feet, um, flew eight units angle of attack, which was the most economic speed, 
looked at the fuel to go, got the ship on radar after a, a little while, looked at the fuel to go, distance to go, and it just wasn't going to work. So I called the ship and said, you know, we've been engaged, we're desperately short of fuel. Um, bear in mind, this is the first time I ever landed on a ship at night. Um, they actually turned the ship towards me and came up to 32 knots. Uh, I'd only turned into wind as I was about uh, four or five miles out, and that's what saved us. It just closed the distance enough. I closed the throttle at 90 miles out, um, descended into the cloud, very thick cloud, ended up um, in a thunderstorm with heaving rain, and came out of the cloud um, all about a mile behind the ship or so, still with the throttle idle, and saw the ship, slammed the nozzles, the gears, and flapped down, brought the power up, came screaming up alongside, stopped, and as, um, as I broke cloud, the low-level warning light started to flash, which was 500 pounds of fuel. Um, came up alongside the ship, didn't stabilise the hover at all, whipped it across, slammed it down, taxied forwards, and then was aware Dave was landing about 30 seconds behind me. Um, and I had, I had about 90 seconds fuel remaining when I landed, about 300 pounds. Um, and I checked, Dave had a little bit less than me. Um, I checked the uh, pilot's notes the next morning and it said up to 300 pounds can be unusable depending on the attitude of the aircraft. And I'd come alongside and gone, oh, like that, and then landed. So I was very, very lucky. Um, I was taken uh, up to see Wings for a debrief, uh, both of us, and then he took us down to uh, uh, the captain for a debrief. And we were then joined by John Locke, the ship's commander, who said the Admiral wanted a debrief. We went down to the Admiral's cabin. And um, as we left the cabin, I just looked at my watch. And uh, John Locke said, don't worry, Moggy, we've kept the bar open for you. <laughs> and we arrived in the boardroom bar and there were three pints each on the bar for us. But... Um, the, the two guys I hit both died. One, The first one died in the aircraft. The second one was never found. I think he was probably unconscious when he hit the water, having ejected very fast from a skyhawk. Uh, they had ballistic spreaders on the parachute, so they tend to split you up the middle if you're going too fast. The third guy that I tried to gun, and then Dave shot down, um was found by the islanders still strapped in his bang seat. Um, there was a fourth guy. I knew there were four, but I never knew where he went to. And it transpired. I met him 10 years later in London, Hector Sanchez. Uh, he had been the last guy running in for the attack. And I had nearly collided with him as I came in. And he'd broken away to stop the collision. And by the time he turned around to get back to me, I'd shot the first guy down and was just about to shoot the second guy down. And 
his gun had been damaged by ground fire a couple of minutes earlier and wouldn't fire. So, uh, and it was maximum range, but he might just have got me. Um, but we're now very firm friends. And in fact, I met up with him uh, in the Falklands last February. Not, not last February, February last year, beg your pardon. And we also went back with the son of the third Skyhawk pilot um, and a bunch of his friends to his, the wreck of his father's aircraft. And um, I was able to stand there with him and Hector and explain exactly what had happened and show that he, he'd been told that his father had flown into the ground. And I was able to prove to him that it wasn't. He'd actually been shot down by a missile. You could see the damage mark on the aircraft. Could you? And in fact, it was shrapnel through the ejection seat. So his father had been killed instantly. Well, we um, put up a small memorial there. It was quite, quite moving. I did want to ask you about that, that emotional aspect. I mean, you, you, it's war and um, they've just dropped a bomb on your, your comrades in arms in, in their um, sort of landing craft. Um, you're doing what you have to do. Uh, but afterwards, and, and clearly, and, and this comes through all the way through the book in, in terms of your your sort of emotional response to the things you're being asked to do, you're not enjoying the the, the, the process of going out there and taking other people's lives. But um, how do you feel about it afterwards? Is it is it something that weighs on your mind? You, I, I note that you know in the beginning of your book you. You're, there's a there's a great bit of narrative, and you think that it's you flying a combat mission, but it's not. It's you having a, a nightmare, um, and uh, you know I understand that you you had post traumatic stress mm. during that particular engagement. My emotions went instantly from one extreme to another, from absolute concentration, almost hatred of the target the guy that I was shooting down because he just attacked and pretty sure killed some of my guys. Um, and I'm supposed to be looking after these guys. So I was, I was a very, very intense anger. Um, and then when I saw the second guy actually in the parachute, that switched 180 degrees to empathy and then immediately 180 degrees back to huge anger as I attacked the third guy. And um, after that, uh, once we were back on board, I mean, huge sense of elation and relief. Relief that we'd actually managed to get back on board um, because it was very, very close run. Um, and elation that we'd actually managed to carry out the task that we were asked to do. Um, later on, you know, you begin to think, well, actually, if we'd met these guys in a pub somewhere, we'd have been best of pals. And um, certainly meeting Hector 10 years later helped a lot because uh, I'd been through some, some fairly rough times with PTSD. Um, Nightmares were one of the things. Um, tape recording in my head 
like a videotape just playing over and over and over. And in fact, at one stage, um, the only time that I got any respite from this this nonsense was when I was flying, because when I was flying, I could my brain could do nothing else but concentrate on what was going on. Um, but on the ground, uh, it, was, it just kept coming back, which was not good. Um, and it's one of the reasons that made me leave the navy. Actually, so I didn't. I just felt I couldn't uh, couldn't carry on with that. I've seen an interview with you on YouTube. Uh, I think it's filmed in 1990. You're still flying Sea Harriers with the Navy at that point. Um, how quickly then did the PTSD take hold following the conflict? Um, it started almost immediately. Um, the the videotape in the head bit, um, and I thought, ah, oh, this is stupid. I'll you know, I'll cure myself. So I, I thought I cured myself. I just, you know, got a grip, as they say, and sorted it out. And all I'd done actually was just drive it deeper under. And um, it was um, at the beginning of the first Gulf War that brought it all to a, to a head. Um, my squadron was supposed to be going to join Illustrious and go out there. And it suddenly came back and hit me uh, on the back of the head. And um, I knew the, the doc at Yeovilton very well and went to see her and said, look, Liz, I've got a major problem here. I, I need to get it sorted when we get home. And she said, OK, uh, I can do one of two things. I can ground you or I can take you off the squadron and put you on the training unit. So you'll still be flying and training the new guys, but you won't be going to war. Um, go away and talk to your wife and think about it and let me know in the morning. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to walk into the briefing the next morning and tell the, uh, tell the squadron that I wouldn't be going with them to the Gulf War. But in fact, all they did was steam around in circles off Cyprus which would have absolutely crucified me. Um, so I'm very glad and always thankful for, to, for Liz to, for taking me off. It was the right thing to do, certainly. If it's not a stupid question, what has caused the PTSD? Because you, you've, you've had near-death experiences, uh, you know, flying Harriers in the RAF, and you've seen friends die. You, you, you recall seeing a friend die in Jet Provost at... at uh, you know, when you're, when you're going through pilot training. Um, what is it about the Falklands that's caused this? And the only thing I can tie it down to is the, is the extreme emotion changing so rapidly and coming out of that and thinking, how the hell do I come to terms with the fact that my emotion can change so quickly? Um, and seemingly haven't no there's no control over it it just happened uh, I think it was that particular engagement that did it although I mean there were lots of other possible triggers um, but I suspect that was that was that was the one and, and how are you now 
a lot better a lot better yeah i've um going back about 12 14 years now i started to get cycles of of not feeling very good and i thought oh it's coming back um and so i thought well if i'm going to live with it for the rest of my life um i might as well get a a war disability pension so i applied for a war disability pension got assessed and the um the guy said yeah it's classic ptsd symptoms i'm afraid but you know it's 25 years since the event i'm not sure we'll be able to do much for you now but there is someone local to you who's got a good record uh, if you're willing to pay privately and i said yeah absolutely give it a shot and I was referred to um, a local therapist who was fantastic. And um, she was, she really made life worth living again for me. And smoothed out all the bumps, well, a lot of the bumps. Um, yeah, did a very good job. You mentioned when we talked last time that your father was still alive when you deployed mm. to the, the Falklands. When you came back, was it something you could talk to him about? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I wasn't going to make the same mistake as um, as he made of not actually talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot better now. Combat Stress has got some very good programs. Um, they weren't uh, available when I was going through my problems. But, um, no, they're very good. Uh, but uh, it's, there's, it's, it's more widely appreciated now. I think it's always been there. But it, people have covered it up. Or, you know, good old British stiff upper lip, just get on with it, lad. Um, but I'm pretty sure that my father had was suffering from PTSD from the Second World War, although he would never, never entertain the, that possibility. Um, I mean, they, they shot you for it in the First War. They grounded you in the Second World War. And... The Air Force tried to um, court-martial one of the exchange pilots in the, in the uh, Falklands War. Was, was that the chat that you you said had to go home? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you didn't sort of say too much about it other than the, the squadron had uh, a sympathy for, for his predicament. Oh, very much so. Uh, he was a very good instructor, uh, just about to leave the Air Force, and was sent off down south. He was on exchange with the Navy. Um, he shot the second Argentine aircraft down on the on the first day of the war. Um, and then the following day, or a couple of days later, got a really nasty cold and genuine bunged-up cold, couldn't fly. So it was locked, locked in the ship. And... Uh, suddenly got huge claustrophobia and so the doc gave him some happy pills and he was fine he was the ops officer for several days until his cold cleared up 
and he um, stopped taking the, the tablets and just said, I can't do this anymore. Um, so they put him on a ship heading north and the Air Force wanted to court martial him. Really? Lack of moral fiber. And the Navy um, said, no, we want him back. We want him to train the next lot of guys. And the Air Force wouldn't have it. But um, when we got back into Portsmouth, Brian Hanrahan came on board. Uh, he was a great favorite of ours during the conflict. And uh, he said, where's Bertie? Um, and he said, well, the Air Force are trying to screw him. And he said, ah, okay, give me the details and I'll make a few uh, pertinent inquiries, which he did. And um, he ended up being uh, getting a uh, um, medical discharge um, and he got his got his medical back within six months and started flying hunters as civilian at Yeovilton but um, no we were up in arms guy had done done more than uh, anyone else in the air force had done on the first, on his first day at war so you stayed in the navy until 1991 that would have been then um, 92 yes 92, okay. i uh, i transferred air force to navy in about 84 i think it was 83 84 um i was going to leave um, and the navy said no don't do that join us we'll promote you give you a squadron you know everything um which uh, i got promoted but i never did get a squadron um, but I, yeah, I, I transferred to the Navy um, and flew on all the frontline squadrons, 801 mostly, um, as their AY, uh, and then senior pilot. And then 92, I decided I, I had, to, had to leave. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Things were getting on top of me. Uh, and of course, post the Gulf War, no, none of the airlines were recruiting. So it took me two years to get a job. And eventually I got a job flying uh, 747s with Virgin and did nine, 19 years nearly with them. How much military time did you get then? So you joined? I joined in 66 and with a six month interregnum left in 92. So, so you spent almost as much time flying 747s as you did flying in the yes. military? Yes, yes. Not so many people shooting at me. And, and when we interviewed before, I, I could see there was a tiger moth on the uh, um, on the windowsill behind you, or maybe on the bookshelf behind you. Um, so that's what you do now. You own your own your own tiger moth. Yeah, there's eight of us. Yeah. Yes, it's a nice little 1938 tiger. I don't dis I don't actually display anymore. Uh, I gave up displaying about eighteen months ago. Uh, the rules got tighter and it cost more. And the only displays I were doing, or most of the displays were village fates and so on, and just wasn't uh, worth their while to, to pay me to get a clearance. Um, but I still do aerobatics, teach aerobatics. I've got a nice 400 metre field at the back of my house, which the farmer lets me land in every so often. You have um, you talk about your family in, in your book. You have a son and a daughter. Did either of those two take up aviation as an occupation? No, Lizzie um, did a gliding scholarship at Yeovilton when she was in her teens, 
but no, she's a, 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 a biomedicinal chemist, and um, my son is working for a, an American company um, which uh, does uh, software systems uh, security. So you didn't you didn't manage to transfer the flying bug then? No, I, I, the first trip I took Charles on uh, on a seven four seven. Uh, we went to Boston and had a few good parties uh, with the girls and boys. And um, on the way back, he said, do you know what? I think I'll become an air steward. And I said, <laughs> if, you want to, if you want this lifestyle, then knuckle down, get a license and become a pilot. <laughs> but no, neither of them really, uh, although they're very happy to fly in the aircraft, they're They've never really got the bug. Just finally then, um, Mog. Well, not quite finally. Two questions then. Mog, where does Mog come from? Uh, um, in on in an Air Force squadron, and usually a Naval squadron as well, on the planning board, everyone has a trigraph, three letters, because it's just too difficult to write all your names. And it's usually the first three letters of, of your name. However... When I arrived on three squadron, there was already Clive Morell there, who was M.O.R. So I became M.O.G. Um, as in Moggy. Finally, and, and perhaps a little bit more uh, controversially, what was your take then on the relationship between the, the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy during the Falklands? I mean, you, you know, there's been a lot written, you know, in in the media since then um, about, you know, who, who should be credited for what. What's your take on the contributions made and, and the way that relationship dynamic worked? The relationship at squadron level was, was fantastic. Um, there, was, there was no uh, friction there at all. Uh, we, we personally knew a lot of their pilots and they personally knew a lot of us. Um, where the problem came was that one squadron, when they arrived, uh, had been used to working with a very well-developed NATO tasking and reporting system, which is a very, very slick system. And that was completely absent in the Falklands. Um, the ship was trying to task aircraft just to go and you know, go off and find something and attack it which is not the way that they, they operate. Um, and it wasn't until reasonably late on in the campaign that we managed to get uh, one of our guys who'd done a liaison job before um, into the headquarters setup so that he could actually start um, tasking the ground attack missions properly. And, and also getting the, the feedback from the results, which is, you know, as important for the guys on the ground. Um, so I think that was the initial problem, that the, the support wasn't there for, for one squadron's tasking. Um, the captain of Hermes didn't really want them there either, to be honest. He would rather have more sea harriers than GR3s. 
Um, I know towards the end of their time on board, uh, OC1 Squadron was having a really hard time with the captain, um, which was really painful to watch. Um, they 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 got the the nasty end of the stick that's for sure and of course they had an aircraft which wasn't designed to operate off a carrier the inertial navigation system rarely aligned properly um, the aircraft was not designed to operate off the carrier it had bolt-on mods to make it just about compatible uh, the weapons they were carrying, the two-inch rockets, they'd never used before. Um, it, it was all, they were sort of thrown in the deep end without much support and without the, the, the framework that they were used to. And they were used as, as fodder by, um, by the captain. Uh, if there was a ground attack mission, he'd, he'd send, the, send the GR3s because he didn't mind losing them and he didn't want to lose his sea harriers. Um, it was unfortunate. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Delighted. <laughs>